Onassis Foundation and Movement Radio present The Archipelago, a podcast series that follows ideas erupting from the abyss of human activity. Hosted by Yanis Orestis Papadimitriou. is not a solid terrain piling up on its own remains. It is the sum of every clouded memory and half-spoken word, forever in flux, always dissolving in the sea of history. It is an anarchic patchwork of thought and creativity, hidden behind grand narratives of actions. The minor overtaken by the major and erased from the record. The archipelago. The fluid territory of emerging thought is the recovered record. In her 2014 book Beautiful Data, Orit Halpern, an associate professor in Concordia University of Montreal, traced the history of post-war design and planning from Norbert Wiener's cybernetics through influential thinkers like Georgi Kepes and Charles Ames. She studied how their work shaped new modes of perception and cognition based on data visualization, leading in turn to new ideas on governmentality. In the following conversation, we talked to Orit Halpern about the ideas and innovations of post-war design, as well as her current work on the concept of resilience and her take on the smart mandate, which sheds a different light on the global status quo of the last 50 years. This is The Archipelago, a weekly show on Movement Radio. I'm Jens Oreswa Dimitriou, recording and editing by Stefan Sustadinides. Orit Halpern, welcome to the archipelago. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So, uh, as I was going through your book, uh, actually when I started your book, Beautiful Data, I had this idea that you were kind of dismissive uh, of data visualization. But as the, mo- as the book goes on, and especially <laughs> in the end, um, it seems like you could see some, um, some good uses of it. Uh, are you dismissive of it, or can you see something that could be utilized in a different way? Well... In general, I tend to be really interested in diversity and discontinuities and um, multiplicities in history. And I don't really like overarching statements such, I mean, with an exception, of course there are exceptions, um, but I don't usually take overarching stands like this is really good or this is bad on something so complex and widespread, frankly, as data visualization. Rather, I'm really interested in whether uh, by exploring different types of histories, we can find latent possibilities that might lead to different effects or impacts in the world. So how are people using these techniques, technologies, epistemologies differently in ways that end up 
having bearing uh, politically and ethically on the world we live in. So I'm really interested in that question of divergence and, and differences. Um, and I kind of re reject, if you will, a kind of historical account that would flatline and say that there's a sort of homogeneity uh, around something, say, like data visualization, again, uh, since that was your question. But more broadly, I take it, uh, around many questions involving technology, um, discourses around whether it's nature, environment, um, capital, all these things I find that, um, you know, anytime we're exploring a moment in history, it's usually much more diffuse and less homogenous than we think it is. So I'm really interested in exploring that. And so I'm not, so I'm not really antagonistic to data visualization at all. Obviously, I'm antagonistic to the attention economy as it might take in certain formulations, obviously. Um, but in other modes I'm really interested in what can be done when we transform our transform our our, um, our perceptual field and our sensorium technologically yet in one point of your book you seem to celebrate the fact that um, all modes of, of cognition are um, let's say historically said that they are fleeting uh, that they pass that they change uh, so uh, I'd like to ask you this how do, uh, why is can we say that this way of uh, a way of seeing, a way of cognition, a mode of cognition. Uh, we'll have to discuss the terminology a little bit. Uh, but why can't we say that this is prevalent uh, in our time, that this is the prevalent way to do things in our time? Uh, is it just the attention economy? Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can answer a question like that because I'm actually non-causal, which is to say I'm really interested in analyzing how how different conditions in history change, but I'm very against offering causal responses that simplify the historical field and say it's all just because of one thing. Um, I think that there's obviously a relationship here between political economy, technology, uh, forms of knowledge, uh, different ideas of governmentality and power that all come together to create these kind of interactive environments. So I wouldn't, I really wouldn't say it's just one thing. And I, I also want to add that I'm quite antagonistic to the um, kind of assumption that the attention economy is a inevitable thing and that it's always relentlessly getting worse. Um, I think that's a discourse we've inherited from the 19th century, where ideas of shock, overwhelming, that technology is somehow threatening to the human or to nature. And I find that those questions have to be uh, really interrogated, uh, which is not to say that I think that social networks or um, mass media do not have incredibly negative political and economic effects, and nor do I think that we're not being regularly exploited through um, corporate entities. So this is not a naive statement arguing that the attention economy does not exist, but it is a, a question about sort of what we're talking about when we say that and how does it get maintained? So I'm not as interested in why things happened as how do they work? You know, what work does it do, for example, to invoke the attention economy? And how does this idea of the attention economy sustain itself? Because a lot of work goes into making what seems like an, a so easy thing that Google or Facebook or some other en corporate entity does actually demands a huge amount of 
of labor, not only labor in, in the way we think about um, human work, but actually a lot of intellectual histories of technology, histories of knowledge, um, finance. There, there are massive infrastructures that have to do a huge amount of work to maintain these seemingly normal and natural economies. So um, that's sort of my stance about it. So in the sense, come to think of it, it seems like you're describing, uh, the, like you're saying that every situation we find ourselves in is a kind of uh, increasing complexity. Am I reading right between the lines here that there are more and more factors that weigh into understanding uh, each and every situation? I mean, I don't know if I... I don't want to create a situation where I want to say the past was really simple and the present's really complicated. Um, but I would say that obviously uh, the kind of socio-technical networks were uh, within and the kind of planetary scale forms of geoengineering, terraforming, and uh, media networks obviously mean that impacts ripple and move at, at kind of, I would argue, unprecedented speeds so that there are, you know, really rapid uh, changes. And it's very hard, I think, to um, model or necessarily fully predict uh, these systems because they're both incredibly networked and in interacting together um, technically and political econ economically, but they're also, um, you know, I think we, we're, we're struggling with our predictive mechanisms, if you will, our abilities to model or simulate what's going to happen or how these, um, these networks engage with one another. So in that sense, it's more complex. Uh, but again, it's also more complex because we also understand that it's complex. So part of it is also what our worldview is. Then we, we increasingly, the discourse of complexity is popular and emerges in it. And, I, and sometimes for good and for, sometimes for bad, because complexity can also be an excuse, of course, not to do anything. Um, so, so it's a really interesting discourse right now. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to take us a, a few years before your um, your work starts. I mean, the the, the you, maybe the third, the nineteen thirties, and during the war, we we have science questioning. Maybe knowledge reaching its limits with the you know Gödel's incompleteness theory brings some questions. Uh, Heisenberg's uh, uncertainty raises some questions about the limits of science of knowledge through science. And then uh, after the war, we have maybe the, at the end of the war, we have the atomic bomb, bomb which usually which raises serious questions about the use of technology. Um, and then yeah. when the, the period that you start to actually uh, study uh, begins with the techno-optimism. And I'm curious, uh, wh where do you think that comes from? The techno-optimism? I mean, I think that partially comes within the situation I'm discussing, which is the United States of America, I mean, um, the U.S. does not have the same history, of course, as Europe, and I think kind of came out of World War II in an incredibly empowered position, and so, uh, and an incredible amount, I think, of optimism about its strength and power as a leading um, scientific and technological empire, and, and I think also it's really important to Remember how seriously central um, 
you know, science and technology were to the war effort and to succeeding in the war effort. So I think for Americans, uh, the future looked incredibly, uh, you know, positive and bound for not all Americans. Of course, racism was extremely persistent at this time period. And, you know, there's a whole series of, uh, you know, obviously this is not equally distributed, but I think certainly um, many of the leading figures in modern design and architecture felt also very optimistic um, about uh, the American capacity to use technology for good. And in fact, I think very optimistic that they could critique the tragedy of modernity and actually come back with a better response, that this was not going to, that this country wouldn't replicate the same um, errors that had happened either with European politics and the rise of fascism or with um, European colonialism. So, um, well, for most people, that seems incredibly naive to believe. I think like a lot of the designers... I think, um, took up that attitude, you know, um, which we can retroactively critique as its own kind of form of new form of imperialism. But it was very much done in this um, extremely optimistic mode that assumed that the U.S. was A, not Europe, and uh, B, was ascendant scientifically and technically and could use that power um, to change the world, which it did, uh, whether for good or for bad, is of course uh, a subjective decision. Mm -hmm. and, and this new approach uh, expressed itself uh, by focusing on process instead of form. If I'm uh, if I'm reading the story correctly, how can we distinguish between the two? How can we understand uh, what the difference is between them? <laughs> wow, you're asking me like really great and difficult questions. Um, I think the way to think about it is really to think, one, about the practices, like sort of how does one approach a problem? You know, do you approach it by thinking about your final, what you need to build, a chair, or, you know, the form follows function kind of Bauhaus approach where we need to build something, we're going to find the same thing, the best route to it, and um, but the thing itself is sort of the end point. Or do you think about it more in terms of um, software development where you're constantly beta testing and there's never really a final version, right? And we may think that that's not a... And now, of course, those two are not that clearly separated. I'd also want to urge to say that obviously schools, whether the Bauhaus or others, obviously were worried about the process of design um, almost as much as the final form. But I would say that The key thing is sort of how concerned people were with um, that form as as the kind of results and how concerned people were with process. And to, to make that more materializable, um, we can think also about the fact that, for example, what does it entail to make something like management consulting a commodity, 
right? Like think about how strange that is that we have people who just come in and engineer your business process and your supply chain, um, that logistics has become a, a design field. You know, think about all those locations that are actually historically specific that we take for granted and that many of us even work in that are actually so organized around taking process and making it a thing in itself that we can design and manipulate. So whether and even turn into technologies, if you think about Salesforce or, you know, your standard workflow, um, human resources platform. Um, so the idea that we could turn all these daily interactions, these um, actual processes into um, entire industries as a thing in themselves whose goal was to, is to sell nothing but the process like they're not selling the car at the end we can say that industrialism had processes but we have to um kind of think about that a little bit so uh, we have the, these designers and theorists uh, that follow after a uh, winner uh, and they take up most of the story in beautiful data like georgi keppers or charles ames uh, they imagine new modes of cognition largely built upon uh, found information maybe could we say that what they are attempting to do is kind of remove history from knowledge opt for a knowledge that doesn't rely on history um i don't know if that's true but i think that there's um a lot of kind of i think that there's a fair amount of um interest <sighs> I think that one of the things is that the idea of having instantaneous communication or being able to communicate directly through cognition or through affect largely, of course, is kind of a fantasy about getting past representation and translation, which already always becomes a problem home of immediacy. So I would say that actually Norbert, not all these people agreed, and that's a big part of this book. Nobody agrees. Um, I kind of don't like when people throw around the term cybernetics like it's one thing, because it's not. It was actually kind of a holding term. It was kind of a lack that people just kind of reorganized their practices around, but was often defined in radically different ways. You know, um, so there so it's really important to accentuate that first. And secondly, I think that some people really were invested in trying to, you know, bring the mind and the machine closer together and to overcome what they saw as a problem in communication, mainly the problems of translation and representation where obviously the message may or may not arrive because people will interpret it differently, they'll act differently, they may not respond as you know, as intended. And in that sense, there's a certain kind of fascist, to use Dilda's tendency. But I think a lot of people are also really worried about that. And that ongoing questions of how history or time was going to enter preoccupied designers and theorists and urban planners and, and um, computer scientists throughout um, this period. And of course, people like Norbert Wiener worried a lot about the political impact of a system that could bypass um, cognition or, you know, representational politics. 
And I think that that's coming to fruition again with our debates over AI, obviously, uh, where, you know, the single major debate is really about being able to contextualize our historicized data. And that's, that's really at the heart, I think, of most discussions about bias is that it's extremely hard when, when using training sets to actually situate or contextualize, right, um, the data that's being analyzed by the neural net or or what other, other learning algorithms you might be using. So I think that this is kind of an ongoing haunting, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the, despite the differences, all these uh, people that fell under the, that were classified under cy cybernetics, uh, Uh, where, according to you, they had this common uh, base of focusing on uh, the importance of uh, of vision, and vision is actually it carries a whole set of meanings. It's a, it's a very um, strange term <laughs> in a way. Okay, uh, yeah. uh, would you say that when we refer to vision as related to postcode design, we are talking more of seeing or gazing? Is it a contemplative or a naked eye, the one they employ? I I like your phrasing of a naked eye. You know, again, this is a wonderful question that I'd have to kind of think about. I think one of the the things that that doesn't seem to exist in these ideas of perception, and I and I do want to say that very quickly, the question of vision really broadens out to a question of perception and cognition. That um, people are preoccupied with vision and machine vision still preoccupies a lot of machine learning and artificial intelligence research because it's a it's a complicated problem um, for for computers but uh, I would also say but I also don't want to separate it from other senses so I just want to um, kind of put that out and when you say like the naked eye I think ultimately the interesting thing is that uh, I don't know I don't think a lot of these people had any necessarily some of these people didn't even have ideas of human eyes so i think there's really a a question there about what type of sight there is and then i don't think there was too much contemplation going on i mean i think that's one of the markers you know uh the historian of science lorraine daston will talk about how earlier periods of 18th century or 17th century observation would involve um, huge amounts of contemplation of really spending, particularly in the 18th century, you know, she'll talk about um, people really spending a huge amount of time in the 17th and 18th century looking at things um, uh, and spending, you know, that there's this moment where Linnaeus, for example, with his flower clock, that he's actually watching the flower bloom uh, and documenting this and that this is critical in um, natural history and philosophy in those time periods. And we're talking about a totally different regime, if you will, to use Foucault, a vision where people are interested in really finding patterns and data really fast um, and actually kind of absolutely not spending a huge amount of time contemplating again the object and so in that sense i would say that the 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 eye that's envisioned here is um extremely automated and informatic and i also think that people have a real idea here of trying to automate vision and that means abstracting it from the human body or frankly the frog's body or any other animal body it, they want they're trying to build machines that can see um and do that and And in many ways, 
put us into machineries that uh, might be able to see or perceive beyond ourselves. And again, think about that in a contemporary way about the way we're networked in social networks or um, in anything that the, you know, the information system or Google or Facebook or whoever you want, Instagram, TikTok, sees, right, quote unquote, sees more than any one user, right? So um, there's something about that networked cognition perception that I don't know if people were conscious of yet, but they were ultimately kind of building, you know, mm -hmm. they were reformulating how we think about how we think and how we see to make it possible for us to even imagine entering these kind of networks with each other. Yeah, but uh, one could say that this was uh, ineffective. We look at it uh, from a distance. Uh, that it simply, yeah. you know, uh, aggregated data with pattern recognition. That <laughs> that was all there was in it, right? I don't know. I, you know, again, I'm a historian of science, so the the question is how. How is it that you think it's so simple? That that how is it that you could say that's all there is to it? Aggregated data and pattern cognition. When we know that actually it's quite hard for um, machines, for example, to find patterns in things like images or words. Um, that actually aggregating data takes an enormous infrastructure of satellites, GPS, GIS systems, uh, software, sensors everywhere, surveillance camera. I mean, the amount of technology and infrastructure that you have to, to have to even say a statement like that, for me, that's remarkable. Like, I, you know, I, I, I have to say, like, I, for me, I think the key thing for people that I hope they take away from a book like this is just how remarkable it is that for us, we take as assumed or natural things like the attention economy or even aggregating data, you know, um, that these actually took a while, in fact, a couple hundred years of developments and statistics, rethinking even what a population, inventing the idea of a population, um, states, uh, bureaucratic methods of um, data gathering. I mean, all these agglomerations of history and technology to allow one to make a statement like you just said, which um, which I also say. I think all of us share in that sensibility that that's just something automatically done today. But um, I think one of the things that interested me about this period is that it wasn't at all automatic and that people actually struggled with not so much the question of um, of data aggregation, but data surplus. What happens when we have too much data? You know, and I think we still do. You know, um, if we actually had every bit of data, we would actually have real trouble um, processing or understanding anything, right? So, and also what is data? We know that there's no such thing as um, is real data. You know, there's there's uh, all data has to be manufactured, made, and and produced and collected. So it's always already a kind of created thing. 
Okay, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It does. Actually, this is what I was going for mostly, that we have this, um, uh, all these concepts that uh, evolved over time <laughs> with a lot of experimentation and with uh, thousands of uh, labs and researchers and technology companies and universities all around the world included. And we have this, this trivialized notion, this trivialized, maybe this trivialized concept of technology in our minds. I mean, Uh, you hear of pattern recognition, you say it's, you think of something that just is there. You know, it's what you said. It's like it's natural, uh, like it's everything. Mm -hmm. But I'm also I'm also interested in what you said about the surplus of data. Um, and do we have the studying this uh, this history uh, of, of uh, design? Can we say when data is too much? <laughs> when, when it becomes uh, when it becomes overwhelming? Uh, I think we, you know, I think we can say some things about it. Um, I mean, I think the question of overwhelming is a is an ethical question and a political question. Data, it's a question of what kind of world we want. So I don't know if there's any... I think data becomes overwhelming when it can't... It forecloses certain possibilities for other... for diversity in say politics or if we want to take if we want democracy i mean these are really questions about what system like you can't just say it's overwhelming it we have to have an idea unfortunately normative of what kind of system we want to maintain so um if you're absolutely interested in certain types of um extremist politics and data is is not overwhelming like it permits the production of noise and it permits the the rise it can permit paranoia um in other ways in other concerns like walter benjamin had data became a problem because people over inundated can't figure out what they're caring about and can't figure out you know what to do about it so you know i think there's a real um interesting set of questions there just about you know um what are our expectations and desires are for what kind of systems we want you know mm -hmm. um and also what kind of psychic states we want like if you're aspiring for contemplative uh for certain types of states of attention then indeed Uh, contemporary certain media systems might be really quite terrible for them. So I think that there's a real question there more about, I would rather have a question about homogenization and standardization of data than I would about uh, data inundation or not. I think the bigger question is how different is the data you're getting and how, um, how diverse and what kind of messages are we getting um, And how does the quantity create questions around reinforcement and uh, understanding? <laughs> but, but I don't from, know if that was well answered. But. No, no, it was perfectly answered. From the from the models that you actually deal with with in your book, from the systems, the projects, the exhibitions, and everything, mm -hmm. uh, the one that seems to bring the, the the idea that seems to bring you the most discomfort is how uh, these. Um, uh, I'll use the word abstractions. I'm not sure if it's the best uh, way to phrase it, but the way these abstractions seem to seem to obscure race more than any other social category. Uh, why do you think that? Do you think that race is actually um, inherently, uh, let's say, inherently obscured by such modes of thinking? 
and designing? Um, I would say within the United States. Again, I, I want to say this is uh, in many ways an American story where, of course, uh, race and race relations play a critical element, if you will, in the political economy of this state. I, you know, I think in other contexts, race would always figure, but uh, also there may be other questions of uh, more prominent of religion, et cetera, that I haven't really looked at. But there, but the fundamental feel is I do believe that the turn to technological solutionism in a certain moment in U.S. history where civil rights was emerging as a as as the political system was opening up to uh, to to African Americans was a really um, is a really important part of the story. That a lot of this technology took was taken up, obviously, in urban planning and in in, um, in urban design and as well as in in modes of attempting to kind of negotiate and and kind of if you will cover up the racial disparities and problems in the US or to attempt to channel political challenges into technological solutions i think that that's a really vital and important part of of understanding how media new media developed in the united states um and perhaps i think we could extrapolate that more globally that I think we're seeing, a re we saw a real rise, whether in international development or in other things, of kind of a technological solutionism to negotiate decolonization of a lot of the world. So I would, I would extrapolate that even further, that at least the people I'm working on are obviously very invested also in a kind of international style, internationalism, and that clearly this kind of approach and it's some effort, whether, and we all know technology itself is political, but was an effort, I think, to, um, to, uh, to, in some sense, evacuate or, or weaken, if you will, certain political challenges coming from African Americans in the United States and obviously from uh, many movements in the world calling for, de for decolonization. Um, so I think that, that that's a critical part of the story. I don't know if that's an answer per se, but I think that it plays a really important part of how people were envisioning the use of technology and has some explanatory work in how people begin to envision managing populations under situations where um, racial tension is at a height and also race relations are changing in the United States.
Now, as far as the U.S. with what was going on abroad is concerned, a large part of your book is dedicated to uh, to how the, the, this uh, this lineage of uh, designers, planners, and thinkers actually fit in with the Cold War uh, diplomacy. So, uh, can yeah. you take us a li- briefly a little bit through that relationship, how it has evolved over time? Um. I mean, obviously, you know, um, the post-World War II period is Keynesian and uh, everybody, a lot of people work for the state um, and and many designers, in fact, virtually every scientist uh, or technologist had a, you know, funding from the military or from the U.S. government in some form or another. Um, whether you want to call, whether you want to automatically assume that that means they serve military ends, or whether you talk to a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, the Navy would give you a a grant to write a book on Shakespeare if you said it was supporting the English language, you know, it's up to you. you know, I'm actually not very moral. 